All right, let's open our Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. Sufficiency is our word, word of faith today. As we go through Corinthians, uh, these words that try, uh, I think will bolster us and, and, and see us through some of the, the difficult things. Christ is sufficient for all of our needs. Christ is sufficient to make us successful for the tasks that he gives to us. Now you say, oh, Rand, Christ is sufficient for all my needs Does that mean I can go home and sit in my lazy boy and put my feet up and he will provide for me all those things that I need? Well, no, that's not how it works. And we see that in plenty of places in Scripture. We are not to be found idle. Uh, When our Lord returns, we are to be at the work that he calls us to. But it's those needs here, those needs in our hearts, those things that we think we need to turn to other places to find Uh, to be cared for, to be ministered to, the things of the world, the things that we'll see in a little bit, simply do not offer all that Christ offers, for he alone is sufficient. So if you would, if you're able, stand with me as we read the word of God from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word today, ask that you would open our eyes to it, that we would understand it, that we would see it, Lord, that we would rest in Christ, that he is sufficient, sufficient to change our lives, sufficient to put all of our trust in. Lord, make this plain to us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not in ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. The New American Standard, our version in the pew, if you have that, uses the word adequate. Uh, other translations will use the word sufficient. I think that's a, a better term when we look in depth of it, uh, that Christ is sufficient. We are not sufficient in and of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Now, in every wedding that I do, um, you'll hear some common themes so if you've been to more than one wedding, you've probably gone, I, I heard that the last wedding. Doesn't he have anything new to say? Okay, but there are some things that are just applicable to weddings. And you will hear something like this, at, I think, at every wedding uh, that I, I do. 
Our happy couple comes to this moment in life understanding about as much about love as they possibly can for two who are so young. And we trust that in 10 years, uh, they will look back and think that we really didn't understand love when we got married. And then they'll look back in 25 years and think, I'm starting to get the hang of this. I'm starting to understand this. Okay? And we can think about how when we were married, uh, you might look back and say, well, I was just a kid when I got married. How many of you were just kids when you got married? Okay? And you think... (laughs) Young man over there got married early. Uh, and, and, and so you think, I was just a kid. I really didn't know about life. I didn't know anything. I knew I loved this person, and I was going to spend the rest of my life with them. So we got married. And, and that's, you know, I was, Judy was much more mature than I was when we got married. Uh, probably still is now. Uh, that's the problem. <laughs> okay. But, you know, after 25 years of marriage, I'm, I'm beginning to understand this. Now, of course, our, our, friend Bill Galloway says, well, the first 50 years are the hardest, okay? So, so it gets easier after 50 years. But you can, you can think about maybe that day when you got married and, and you, you were there and you heard the angels singing and the sky was parting and you knew this was fantastic, uh, but you really didn't understand what all was involved in it. Now, when I was seven or eight, my father purchased a set of golf clubs for my brother and started to take him out on the golf course. And my brother's temperament was really not set for golf. Okay, If you've ever watched golf on TV, and, and they try not to show this, but every once in a while you see it, one of the pros will drop a club. Have you ever seen a pro drop a club? Now, that doesn't mean he drops it here. He drops it over there. Okay, he's standing here, and he's hit this terrible shot. Now, a a professional who hits a terrible shot means it didn't go right here. It may have gone, he missed, maybe missed the green a little bit and went in the trap because he was shooting for the pin. So he takes the club, and he throws it. Um, I remember my father, we were at Myrtle Beach, and he threw a club into the swamp uh, at Myrtle Beach (laughs) after a shot. And he looked at it, and, and I said, well, you know, there are alligators over there. He said, yeah, I know. And that, that club was gone. That club was gone. So my brother didn't have the temperament for golf. He liked to drop his clubs. Uh, so after a couple times, my dad looked at me and said, Randy, you want to play golf? And do you want to learn to play? I said, well, sure. I'm eight years old. What do I know? I'm going to spend time with my dad. He takes me out to the driving range, and he puts a club in my hand, and I can hear the angels sing. You know? It was one of those things. Ah, the heavens are parting, and this is great. Um, so I played, and for the last 40 years, I've played off and on at various levels. I mean, I played my way through junior tournaments, club events, high school golf team. I tried out for the college golf team, but I'd broken some fingers, so that was really uh, a lost cause there at that time in life. Sometimes you make great progress on the golf course. Sometimes you try other things, and, and they don't work, and you wonder, oh, am I ever going to play again? Um, my dad told me the story about a guy who's having such a terrible round he's in the locker room you know and he's just he just he lost he's in the locker room and he's cut his wrist and he's sitting there bleeding and a guy comes and says i got a tea time for tomorrow are you in he goes yeah i'm in okay come <laughs> in so so it becomes like that and, and and you know sometimes you do well sometimes you do bad you learn you understand i remember the first day that i beat my father in golf okay he didn't mind losing that day that was a good thing for him when his son could beat him uh, at one point, I was a scratch golfer. That means I, I would expect to shoot par, 
But because of the pressures of life, that just didn't last. It just was for one season. But I can remember when they put that club in my hand. It was like, this is great. But I didn't understand, you know, what it really meant. Like on the day that couples get married here, they understand that they're committing themselves to one another, but they don't understand what love is like. They don't understand what it means to really give of yourself. I didn't understand what it meant to really be able to hit the ball, you know, 300 yards straight. It's easy to hit the ball 300 yards crooked, okay, but to do it again and again straight. Now, I give you these two examples because that's what the Christian life is like so often. We come to Christ. He comes and he, he meets us in some fashion. Now, perhaps you can remember the day that you became a Christian. One day that you were an, an enemy of God, and he comes and he speaks your name to you. That is the day where you profess faith. You receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps you heard the angels singing. Okay, That's the way it was to me. God walloped me. I could hear the angels, and, and it was great. And I thought, this is great. This is, and I thought, can it get any better? But what did I really understand about Christ? What did I really understand about the Christian life and what he calls me to and what he can do? What he can do in a life. I mean, we think of how fantastic this is. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is what happens to the believer. Christ comes and he bestows upon us a new name, a new inheritance. It is kept for us for all time. All of these things are guaranteed to the believer. But like marriage and golf, what we understand on that first day is such a small portion. As we grow and mature, we understand more and more. Just like in marriage, you understand you trust your spouse more and more you can say on the day that you're married i trust you but you don't really trust them until it's been put to the test time and time and time again it takes time to work out in a sense our part to grasp who christ is to understand who christ is and to know as paul has said here that he is sufficient for us That he is sufficient. We are not competent in ourselves to do what he calls us to do, but his grace is sufficient for us. Now, this truth is demonstrated in Paul's life. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 9. For most of us, this is nothing new. This is the time in one dramatic moment Paul comes face to face with Jesus Christ. At this point, his name is Saul, and he is the great persecutor of the church. Not quite sure what time frame this is this is but we'll say this is not long after christ was crucified and he ascended into heaven and the church is growing and saul is now the great persecutor of the church in fact he has uh, documents with him now as he travels on the road to damascus to attack the church these this great um, offshoot of judaism these uh uh, in his mind they were heretics these crazy people worshiping this christ and Saul comes to this moment. Now, we uh, read here in, in chapter 9 of uh, Acts. Now, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that was what Christianity was called, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, that's Jesus Christ speaking. He speaks about why is he persecuting me. He is persecuting the body of Christ, that is believers. So you persecute the body of Christ, you persecute Jesus Christ. Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. What you must do. So here it is, that moment. In a sense, Paul hears the angels, the sky parts, although he sees Christ. And he is confronted, and his life is changed in an instant. Now, I did not see Christ face to face when I became a believer. Okay? He moved in my heart. The Spirit changed my heart in that instance. I did not happen to see Christ. I trust I will see him at death. And he will say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Invite me into the rest that he has prepared beforehand, as he will for all believers, all whom he has called, chosen, all who have received him as Lord and Savior. And he says, go into Damascus, says this to Saul. I'm going to tell you what is going to happen to you. I'm going to tell you what you must suffer and what you must do for my name's sake. So this road to Damascus experience was not everything about Christ. There was much more to be found about Jesus Christ. Now over in verse 19 of chapter 9. And this is, he's in Damascus, he's come to Ananias, and he says, this is where you're supposed to go. You're going to go as a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name to the Gentiles and kings, sons of Israel. I'll show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. And now we get to the second part of verse 19. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began, this is after his, his re, sight was returned, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. What did Paul know about Jesus? That he was the Son of God. So he went to the synagogues. How much did he know about Christ? He knew he changed his life. He knew he met him on the road to Damascus. And that's about it. He begins to say, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. Proclaim means to herald, to announce the deity of Jesus Christ. What he put aside, what he said was a lie just a few days ago, he now proclaims, announces boldly. Now, Look at 21. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? They're shocked. They're shocked that this man could suddenly be changed. Now, we don't know how much time goes between verse 21 and verse 22. But look at it. It says, But Saul kept increasing in strength, and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. At first, all he does is herald, announce that Jesus is the Christ. Now some time has gone by, probably not too long, but now he is proving that Jesus is the Christ. He is announcing the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Now he says, I'm going to prove it. So Paul has grown in his knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
from that moment he heard the angels and saw Christ, his life was changed. And that wasn't all that the Christian life was. Now he is beginning to understand it more and more, and he is beginning to prove the things of Christ. And we know that Paul goes off for three years into the desert and is taught by Jesus Christ, by, through the Holy Spirit. He is not taught by any man, but by Christ himself. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1, and we'll see a little bit about this. Galatians, right after 2 Corinthians. Galatians chapter 1, beginning verse 11. I'll just read and, and talk about it for a while. This is Paul's... How would we say coming to an understanding of what Christ really is like? Okay? He's changed his life. Now it's time to grow. Now it's time to understand. Okay? You've just been married. That's fantastic. And you've got this wonderful glow about you. But now after so many weeks and so many months and years, it is time to grow in your understanding of what marriage is all about. Okay? I've put the golf club in my hand once. It's fantastic. Now it's time to learn how to hit it again and again in the same spot. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, this is, pay attention to this. This is really important. That's what, that's what that little phrase means. That the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. He said, this is not a man-made thing. I didn't make this stuff up. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I didn't get this stuff from somebody else. I got it straight from the Lord, straight from Jesus Christ, the one who I persecuted, the one who I did everything in my power to destroy. He has changed me, and now he is helping me to grow and to understand him. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. More extremely zealous. He didn't say I was zealous. He didn't say I was more zealous. He put three words together, more extremely zealous. Paul is the man. He's as aggressive as you can find in what he was doing. He had exceeded many of his countrymen. But that really didn't mean much. And we'll see that in just a moment. In fact, Paul had become what we call a fanatic for the law. All he wanted to do was destroy this thing called Christianity. And then he comes to Christ. He receives him. His life has changed. Now all he wants to do is grow in the things of Christ. All he wants to do is understand more and more about Jesus Christ. Very often we talk about, well, you know, old Bubba over there in the corner, you've got to understand what his life was like. Okay? That's why he acts the way he does. That's why he says the things he does. We're not necessarily a product of our environment. Paul's environment Paul's upbringing, Paul's entire life was Judaism. 
His entire life was devoted to the purity of Judaism. And Christ changed him in an instant. Christ changed him in a heartbeat, and now all he was interested in were the things of Christ. That's all he cared about. It's all he cared about. Verse 15, But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia, returned once more to Damascus. Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. So I went to the desert. The Lord taught me for three years. He began to understand his, that Christ was sufficient to get him through all that he was going to face. It was over. That road to Damascus experience was wonderful, but it wasn't the maturity that Paul needed. That came over time as God revealed himself to Paul. And so Paul's hit past is gone. I mean, he got a new name from Saul to Paul. We can't say, well, you know, Paul had all this baggage with him. All that baggage was gone. Why? Because Christ changed him in an instant. It was gone. It was put aside. His apostolic call was supernatural. It was by the sovereign Lord, and he was changed forever. Flip over a couple pages to Philippians chapter 3. He said, it was God's sovereign will to call me. Why did God change Paul in this fashion? Acts 26 says, so that God could reveal the things of Christ through him. Paul was changed. Then he grew in his understanding of the sufficiency of Christ for the task that Christ had called him to do. So that he might proclaim the things of Christ. And what did he proclaim? Did he that changed the world? It wasn't a gospel of self-help. It wasn't a gospel of maximizing your potential or being your best or anything like that. Paul said we, we preach what? Christ and him crucified. That's a simple message. Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul was educated in everything. He was educated in philosophy. He was educated in Jewish law, in tradition. But in Philippians chapter 3... Verse 7 and 8. This is what he thinks of those things now. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is the foulest word in the Greek language. If you have King James, it probably says dung. Okay? So you get the understanding of what Paul thought of all that before. All that was dung. I give it all up for the cause of Christ. Jesus Christ changed my life. Everything he ever knew, he now set aside and counted as loss for Christ. What the Christian gospel is, is simply this. Is the answer for all you need for time and eternity. All those things are found here in Christ. All the answers for your soul. All the answers for your sin. 
all the answers for your hope or the life to come. They are all in Christ, and they are only found in Christ. There is no other authority, no other Savior than Jesus Christ. You will find everything you ever needed or desired given to you in Jesus Christ. That's why it says in Colossians chapter 2, In him you have been made complete. Well, what about this or, or what about that? No, it says in him you have been made complete. Paul did not come to this conclusion on the road to Damascus. This conclusion of the sufficiency of Christ came over a period of time. Came over a period of time of Paul putting aside his will and trusting the Lord's will. And seeing that Christ was faithful again and again and again to do what he said he would do. To empower Paul to do the work that Paul was called to do. Some days in our lives we trust him completely. And other days what do we do? God, we pull it back. <laughs> well, I, I, usually, I trust you, but here, I'm going to take care of this one, Jesus, okay? But what do we find? It's in our weakness that we're made strong. We will not be strong until we are weak. Weakness saying, Lord, you do this. I will be available to you. Then I will find the sufficiency of Christ. When I talk about sufficiency, I mean that the philosophies of the world do not give the answers that are needed. The answers are found in him. Counseling of the world can be very helpful, but if it is not based and take into consideration the things of Christ, it will never provide the real answers that plague our souls, the real answers that plague our hearts. may be helpful in the short term, but we must find Christ in them. We must be pointed to Christ. The fact that Christ has the power to change a life in an instant has been clearly demonstrated in Scripture. And how many of us know it in our own life? Just like that, we were changed. In an instant, trusting him to be sufficient in your life now is that process where you trust him and he is faithful. And you trust him and he is faithful. You say, Lord, you said you were sufficient. I'm going to put you to the test. And he is faithful again and again and again. By the time Paul is writing 2 Corinthians, he has put the Lord, in a sense, to the test many times. And Christ has always been sufficient for whatever Paul faced. He is sufficient for us as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the world does not believe this. The world does not think that something we cannot touch, we cannot see in front of us, could be real, could provide for us. The world does not say you have to be weak and then you will be made strong. You have to put aside your own desires and your own selfishness. Then the things of Christ can come in and you can see things that are beyond your imagination and dreams done when you rely upon him. The world does not think this way, Lord, but the church is called to. We are called to examine the world and to have a different perspective, a different starting point than the non-believing world has, a starting point that says Christ is sufficient for all that I need. Now, how am I to live because of that? You have given us examples. You have shown us in the life of Paul and how his world was changed in an instant, but yet he grew to that understanding. 
Many of us understand, Lord. We trust you so much more than we did maybe last year, maybe five years ago, maybe 25 years ago. Lord, help us see those areas in our lives where we have yet to say, you are sufficient for this. I will seek you in your word. I will seek you on my knees. I will seek you in the sanctuary. And you will provide, for you are sufficient. Your grace gives me more than I could ever imagine. Show us in our lives, Lord, where we need to say this, where we need to believe, where we need to rest in you, and know that Christ is sufficient for all of our needs, that we might live to his glory, proclaiming the words of truth, demonstrating those things in our actions, that we live the gospel, we speak the gospel. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 428, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy. Please stand as we sing. Mm -hmm.